Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Delighted because with us today is William K. Black, an associate professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and the distinguished scholar in residence for financial regulation at the University of Minnesota Law School. Bill Black is a white collar criminologist. He's not the criminal, he's the white collar criminologist. He studies white collar crime. He was executive director of the Institute for Fraud Prevention from 2005 to 2007. He taught previously at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin and at Santa Clara University, where he was also the Distinguished Scholar-in-Residence for Insurance Law and Visiting Scholar at the Marcula Center for Applied Ethics. Bill Black was litigation director of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, deputy director of the FSLIC, SVP, and general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco, and senior deputy chief counsel, Office of Thrift Supervision. He was deputy director of the National Commission on Financial Institution Reform, Recovery, and Enforcement. George Akerlof called his book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One, University of Texas Press 2005, a classic. Paul Volcker praised its analysis of the critical role of bank board chairman Gray's leadership in re-regulating and re-supervising the industry. The book has been translated into French with an updated chapter on the global crisis. The updated version of the book was published in January 2014. Black developed the concept control fraud, frauds in which the leader uses the entity as a, quote, weapon. Control frauds cause greater financial losses than all other forms of property crime combined and kill and maim thousands. Bill Black has helped the World Bank develop anti-corruption initiatives, assisted Icelandic and French leaders responding to their financial crises, and addressed members of the UN General Assembly on policies needed to reduce the risk of future financial crisis. Black has testified to Congress about the financial crisis, financial derivatives, executive and professional compensation, layman's failure, and the related regulatory failures and the role of control fraud in the bubble and crisis. Black is Benzinga's regulatory columnist and appears weekly in Bill Black's Finance and Fraud Report on the Real News Network. His blogs can be found on the New Economic Perspectives, where he's the editor-in-chief. Welcome, Professor Black. Thank you. <laughs> Make sure that your relatives get a copy of that. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so let's talk about what's going on in the United States right now. We have a candidate, Bernie Sanders. We have a candidate, uh, Hillary Clinton. They're running against each other as we speak. We don't know when this will be played, but whenever it is, it seems to me that the Sanders concept is pretty plain. Things are really bad, and uh, the big banks are too big to fail, and there's too much money being acquired by the people at the top and not enough for everybody else. What do you make of all of that? Well, we think it's pretty dead on. In fact, when I say we, I'm talking about the newly formed pro bono group, Bank Whistleblowers United, of which I'm a co-founder. And so these are very experienced people from finance who actually followed those signs in the airport. When you see something, say something. So we saw something, we said something, and then life got really strange. <laughs> because when you point out fraud from within an organization that's very powerful, they don't like it very much. So we agree with Senator Sanders. It is not rhetoric. It is a simple truth that Wall Street's business model is fraud. And a particular kind of fraud that you talked about in the introduction, and that is when you have a seemingly legitimate entity and the people at the top use it and that legitimacy, seeming legitimacy, to defraud folks. And you're right. They cause just 
catastrophic harm. Just start with the United States super briefly. The estimate is that over the course of the Great Recession, we will lose $24.3 trillion in GDP. A trillion is a thousand billion. We lost 9.3 million American jobs. We had another 5 million American jobs that normally would have been created that were not created. Ballpark, five, six million people lost their homes. Among college-educated Latinos, over the course of the Great Recession, the median loss of wealth is 72%. The corresponding figure for blacks is 65%. So this uh, has been a financial disaster in the United States of uh, truly epic proportions. And in Europe, because of the insanity of austerity, you know, which is economically illiterate response, uh, you have still eight years after the peak, uh, most acute phase of the crisis, uh, three nations with a combined population of 100 million that have unemployment levels uh, that uh, were last seen in the Great Depression. So what's to be done? Well, we suggest four things, that, and we have deliberately created them in the context of the U.S. election that you were talking about because we want to get rid of all the excuses. So we're a bunch of practical types. In Hillary Clinton's phrase, we are, are incapable of poetry. So all we can do is uh, the prose. So we got together for a detailed series of steps that you could take with no new legislation and no new regulation. And this means any of the candidates could do it, but of course, President Obama could do it as well, and we're calling on him to do so. And our ideas fall into four areas. The first is to restore the rule of law to Wall Street because accountability has simply been eliminated for the senior officers that lead these frauds and become immensely wealthy, by the way, by causing all of those problems that I talked about. So should they and be it in is jail? fraud. Let me, let me interrupt. Should they be in jail right now? Yes. And our steps are the ones you would need to take, as opposed to the rhetoric, to actually make that happen. And these are steps that can be taken very quickly. Now, they have squandered, they being the Bush and the Obama administration, they have squandered most of the statute of limitations. So it is already baked in that there, this will be the worst strategic failure of modern uh, Department of Justice history in terms of prosecution. But there's still time to prosecute you know, roughly the 10 largest, and that's most assuredly worth doing. Second uh, well, thing before you, uh, before you move yeah. on, when you say the 10 largest, who are they and what are their crimes? So their crimes are actually set out by the United States of America, interestingly enough, in pleadings by government agencies, Department of Justice, and the Securities and Exchange Commission. So let's start out with the right-wing devils, and that's Fannie and Freddie. And Fannie and Freddie's leadership, in fact, and we're talking about two different leaderships, did commit this kind of accounting control fraud. So this is frauds led from the top, and the weapon of choice for fraud in the financial sphere is accounting. 
so again, there are government pleadings by the Securities and Exchange Commission saying that the senior leadership committed these frauds at Fannie and Freddie and at Fannie previously in 1998 to 2003. So they're serial recidivists as well. Well, before you go on, specifically, you've alluded to the fraud, but I'm still not getting a great handle on what the fraud actually was, the accounting fraud. All right. So in the most recent case, what it was is that, in fact, Fannie and Freddie bought very large amounts of what are called liar's loans. Now, this is important. This is a phrase that the industry used. This was not what the regulars made up to criticize it. The industry itself used this phrase. And be very clear uh, in this because there are lots of uh, right-wing conspiracies about this. Fannie and Freddie got in trouble overwhelmingly because of liar's loans. Liar's loans don't even count typically towards affordable housing goals. So this theory that Congress made them do it is completely false. And by the way, what does a liar's loan do? In it, typically the lender and its agents greatly inflate the borrower's income. You will note that's a very poor way to qualify for affordable housing. But beyond that, it simply didn't qualify because large numbers of these loans, and particularly the ones I'm about to address, didn't even have the borrower's income anywhere. So they're called ninja loans, again, by the industry. No income, no job, no asset. So, so, right? wait so a they second. couldn't qualify for affordable housing. So wait, wait, wait a second now. So you blame Fannie and Freddie, governmental... No, I blame yeah, Fannie and Freddie's managers. Exactly. Who, so just wait. like Lehman's managers and just like Bear Stearns and Citigroup's and Countrywide's and many others, if we have time to name. But who told uh, them? It's the managers who led the frauds. Okay, but who told the managers to behave in that way? Could there be somebody at HUD, for example, who might have said, you know, everybody gets into a house and I don't care. No, that's the point of the argument from the right is, well, they were forced to make these loans by government affordable housing goals. First, they were goals and there was no penalty for violating them. But second, the things that Fannie and Freddie's managers actually did couldn't possibly be motivated by that because they did things principally liar's loans, where they didn't even have the borrower's income stated. And therefore, it couldn't even possibly qualify for affordable housing. In other words, they bought these liar's loans for the same reason that the managers of Lehman, the same reason that the managers of Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch, Citigroup, and Countrywide, et cetera, et cetera, bought them. And that is they had a much higher, now I'm going to get a little technical, nominal yield. That just means the interest rate, right? But you don't actually make more money by buying these things because, and all of the people that I've mentioned knew this, these liars' loans had a fraud incidence of 90%, according to the industry's own anti-fraud experts. And nobody in the government ever, not only did they not force them to do this, um, they, government, even under Bush, 
consistently warned against these loans, and it was consistently the industry trade groups that fought to be able to make and to buy, in the case of Fannie and Freddie's leadership, uh, these deeply fraudulent loans. And by the way, one of the groups fighting against this was ACORN, that demonized group that supposedly caused all of this. So it's exactly flipped. This is a conspiracy theory with zero support when you look at the underlying facts. And again, liar's loans are the key. A, as I said, they frequently don't qualify, period. And B, the whole purpose of a liar's loan is for the lender to inflate greatly the borrower's income. Well, is that a good way to rack up lots of loans to poor people if you are massively inflating people's income, right? No, it's stupid. It's a stupid theory. But Bill Black, I, I do need to ask you this. Something doesn't ring true to me here, and that is you're putting it on, you know, uh, Freddie and all the rest, Fannie and Freddie. No, I'm putting it on their managers. Banks don't make loans. People make loans. No, I get they that. Just but, I'm also, but, but wait, I'm suggesting to you that it doesn't make sense to me that the managers would be the progenitors of this as opposed to people higher up in government who say, do this. Why are you letting them off the hook? Well, the people in government never said, do this. In fact, it's How do you exactly know that? the opposite. How do you know I that? I know it because I actually was one of these people and earlier time because I've read what they actually said and I've read the statements by people. And no one claims this, right? So first, well. we are the ones that drove liar's loans out of the savings and loan industry. And we did it starting in 1991, which is a whole long time ago. And we did it because our examiners in the field, who are the lowest folks in the food chain, but frequently the best folks, said, starting in 1990, look, these loans make no sense except as fraud devices, right? Nobody would do this as an honest lender. We looked and said, you're right, all right? Now, we, as savings and loan regulators, could only regulate savings and loans. And so the absolute worst of the institutions voluntarily gave up federal deposit insurance, voluntarily gave up their charters to be savings and loans, converted to become mortgage banks that would be unregulated, and this was, and then changed their name, and this was the birth of AmeriQuest, which some of your listeners will know was the early most notorious lender does liar's loans and it does predatory loans that target in particular Latinos and blacks. And note, not the poorest of folks because they can't get loans. These are again, the people who are, according to the system, doing everything right, going to college and university, and hence those losses I talked about. The losses among college educated households among Latinos and blacks were considerably larger than the losses among Latino and black households in which the quote-unquote head of household does not have a college degree. By the way, that pattern is exactly the opposite among whites and Asians, Asian Americans. Okay, you were go let's go back to the fix. You had four, as I remember, fixes that right. you, you, your group has come up with. 
So one is restore the rule of law. So actually prosecute the people who led these frauds and were made wealthy by them. How close now, did we come to doing that? I mean, at any point, people were, <laughs> people were screaming and saying, you know, I hold up a grocery store. I'm going to jail. You people are doing much worse than that. And you're too big to fail and you're, nobody's going after you. OK, so if I was asked, you know, what do I think about the prosecutorial effort against these elite white collar criminals, I would give a variant of Gandhi's answer when he was asked what he thought about English civilization. It would be a good thing. <laughs> there are zero prosecutions of any of the uh, officers who led the three fraud epidemics that caused this crisis. And those three epidemics, super briefly, we've done the liar's loans. By 2006, 40% of all the loans originated in the United States, housing loans, were liar's loans. Remember, a 90% fraud incidence, according to the industry's own anti-fraud experts. The second was appraisal fraud. Again, the surveys show how pervasive this is. And again, no honest lender would ever inflate the appraisal because that's crazy, right? That's your, your protection against loss. And the appraisers went public in the year 2000. Note how early these dates are that I'm giving you. There was plenty of time to avoid these crises with a public warning that says we are being extorted by the lenders to inflate appraisals. And if we refuse to do so, they won't give us business. So those collectively, liars, loans, and appraisal fraud, those are the two great epidemics of loan origination fraud, the making of the loan. But there's no such thing as a fraud exorcist. So once the loans start fraudulent, they're going to remain fraudulent. And the only way you can sell these loans to what was called the secondary market to places like Fannie and Freddie and Lehman and Merrill and Bear, and then beyond through these various derivatives is by making fraudulent reps and warranty representations and warranties. So that's the third great epidemic of fraud. And again, from the industry's own very weak folks, their report is that 46% of the reps and warranties they looked at were false. Could you help us all out here? Because we're not nearly as sophisticated on this as you are, but what's the relationship between the quote managers you've talked about with Fannie and Freddie and the industry? Fannie and Freddie don't make loans. Fannie and Freddie purchase loans. So they are what are called the part of the secondary market. Historically, Fannie and Freddie created, um, well, they're not the absolute first, but they're, they're the ones who created a broad scale secondary market in mortgages. They are massive corporations. They are both in the uh, trillion dollar range even now. So depending on how you measure things, they're in the top 10 uh, corporations in size in the United States of America. During the height of the buildup of the fraud epidemics that I talked about, the liar's loans in particular were sold disproportionately not to Fannie and Freddie, but to the big five investment banks in the United States, plus a number in Europe. So again, this is why there's no Bear Stearns, there's no Merrill Lynch, there are no Lehman Brothers, which were three of the five largest investment banks in the United States, and why other massive investment banks internationally had to be bailed out by their governments, or they too would have failed. So again, people still call this the subprime crisis, but 
that is a terrible misnomer. By 2006, half of all the loans called subprime were also liar's loans. So it's overwhelmingly liar's loans that produce these losses. If you want to call it the non-prime crisis, that's fine. But if you want to pick a single loan, it would clearly be the liar's loan, not the subprime loan. Talk to me, if you will, Bill Black, about uh, Lehman Brothers. Why them? In other words, they seem to be the whipping boy. No, well, Lehman Brothers had the bad luck to be the thing that triggered the collapse, not caused, triggered. And anything could have triggered it, any of the big failures. So historically what happens is the bubble stops growing in 2006. And by the way, that's true not just in the United States, but in most of the countries of the world, including places like Ireland and Spain, where their bubbles as a percentage of GDP are roughly twice as large as the United States. So as soon as the bubble stops growing, these fraudulent loans are going to start blowing up. The saying in the trade is a rolling loan gathers no loss. To roll a loan is to refinance it. So as long as the housing prices are going up, you can mask these bad loans. You just refinance them and you charge more fees. You make the loans bigger. And you, of course, are hyperinflating the bubble. But by mid-2006, they couldn't do this. And the lenders, the fraudulent lenders, start failing, particularly those that have no deposit insurance. So it's harder for them to raise money. So Lehman is, from very early date, one of the great supporters of making fraudulent liars loans and purchasing fraudulent liars loans and firing, for example, its anti-fraud guy because he made a criminal referral when he discovered fraud. So Lehman is dead in any economic sense because it has so many of these bad loans and because it is sold so many of these bad loans under fraudulent reps and warranties. Well, it can get sued for that, right? And in a just world, its people would have been prosecuted for that. But Bear Stearns is smaller and dies even earlier in spring of 2008. It collapses and requires a government-assisted merger. Everybody knows that Lehman is in the same circumstances as Bear. But there's huge right-wing criticism of the bailout, uh, as it was characterized, of Bear Stearns. And so the Bush administration decides that it's not going to bail out Lehman Brothers, even though Lehman Brothers is clearly one of these systemically dangerous institutions that when it goes, it's likely to cause a global financial crisis. At the same time, literally a week apart, that Lehman is going down, Fannie and Freddie go down and are placed into conservatorship. But the markets are anticipating that. It's clear that there's going to be a bailout. That doesn't cause the dominoes to fall. But as soon as Lehman goes, it turns out the the administration missed just one tiny little thing. And that one tiny little thing was that Lehman had issued bonds, a short-term debt. And this short-term debt had been purchased by the oldest and one of the biggest money market mutual funds in America. Now, money market mutual funds are not federally insured. And their thing, though, is that they are ultra, ultra, ultra low risk. 
So it's really, really bad when your ultra, ultra, ultra low risk thing is buying stuff in Lehman Brothers that everybody has known for at least a year is in real economic terms insolvent. The Lehman Brothers files for bankruptcy at 8 a.m. Eastern time, I think on the 15th of September, 2008. Within three hours, the largest run in world history has occurred at the money market mutual fund. $12 billion has been yanked, not by folks like you and me, the places that are yanking the money are huge corporations. By the end of the day, that huge money market mutual fund, which again, nobody uh, in the administration's ranks thought could ever be in danger because it's ultra, ultra conservative in terms of risk, is dead. And that run has expanded to every other large money market mutual fund in America. Within a few days, that run, again, which was already on the first half day, the largest run in world history, had become not $12 billion, but $200 billion. And every single money market mutual fund in America was going to be dead. So they had to extend federal deposit insurance. AIG, the largest insurance company in the world, fails in this same time period for the same reasons. AIG was the largest seller of guarantees for these toxic derivatives called collateralized debt obligations in the world. These guarantees have that odd name credit default swap that doesn't mean anything to people. But in essence, it's a bank guarantee by AIG that says, if you suffer any loss on this toxic stuff, we will pay for it. Well, of course, AIG couldn't possibly pay for the massive losses in all this toxic stuff. But that means all the folks holding this toxic stuff are not going to be bailed out by the private sector, AIG, in the form of these guarantees. And so AIG has to be bailed out as well. And then the international markets begin imploding. Over a thousand financial markets fail. They simply cease trading. Well, what is the value of an asset if you can no longer sell it? It closely approximates zero uh, in these circumstances. So this is where Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, literally gets down on a knee and begs Nancy Pelosi to do a bailout. So she does a bailout. The money goes to AIG from the government. The government comes back and AIG comes back and gets fully funded. How did that work? Well, it works through us. Uh, So two things are going on. One is the more visible um, thing from Treasury, where they actually infuse, in the case of AIG, I think at peak, something like $83 billion from the Treasury into AIG. But behind the scenes, you have the Fed. And the Fed is taking a much larger role. The Fed accepts this toxic waste as collateral to make loans. And the idea is the Fed will hold it off the markets for years and wait for some eventual recovery. And this is how, in fact, um, as we are uh, taping this, um, Hillary Clinton has just bragged the night before in the debates that not a penny was lost to the American people by these bailouts. Well, First, that's not true because our bailouts of Fannie and Freddie are still outstanding. And second, you you can do this for everybody. To what tune? We are on the hook for ballpark $175 billion. 
Wow. And, of course, it's a game, right? If you hold financial assets like real estate for enough years, the housing markets will eventually recover. That doesn't mean there was no economic loss because economic loss includes, in jargon, opportunity costs, what we could have been doing with the money, which includes, you know, like keeping people alive and such that was done educating people, building roads, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a very substantial cost to these things. But the that bigger Fed bailout was done below the radar screens, and people don't know about it to this day. I mean, some of them know there were large numbers, but they don't understand how the collateral works and uh, how they kept these things deliberately off the market. So you're a white-collar criminologist. You're an academic who studies this stuff. Would the results have been a lot worse if people were arrested and put in jail? In other words, at least the system kept going, one could make the argument. But if you put people in jail, obviously it could cause a certain amount of chaos, right? No. That's the difference. Uh, you, you know, there's the line in L.A. Confidential where, you know, the district attorney says he doesn't much care about this guy who committed suicide because he was just an actor and every day the bus dumps a bunch of them type of thing. Well, we don't care about CEOs. We can take them out and replace them with far more ethical people. So in the savings and loan debacle, which was one one hundred and sixtieth the size in terms of losses of this crisis. Mm. We got over a thousand felony convictions just in cases designated as major by the Justice Department. And that understates the degree of prioritization because we operated through the top 100 list. This is the 100 worst fraud schemes in the entire industry involving 300 savings and loans, ballpark 600 senior folks, Virtually all of them were prosecuted. They have the best criminal defense lawyers in the world. America still does some things well. And they'll spend money like water to keep the CEO out of prison because often they can spend the corporation's money to do that. And we still got a 90% conviction rate. So you can prosecute. We know how to prosecute. You don't have to reinvent a wheel, but the Justice Department uh, has forgotten that the wheels of justice even exist when it comes to banking. And as I say, in terms of your question about chaos, apparently modern financial regulators are much more sophisticated than we were because we had never figured out that the way to achieve financial stability was to leave felons in charge of your largest financial institutions. Good point. So if you are Bernie Sanders and you get elected president of the United States, what do you do? Well, you implement this plan. As I said, we designed it explicitly so that there's no excuses. You don't need new legislation, so it doesn't matter who controls Congress. You don't need new rulemaking, so it doesn't matter that the courts of appeals are hostile to regulations or the Supreme Court is. You can use existing regulatory authority we've had for 25 years to do parts two and three, of our proposal. Part two is get rid of the systemically dangerous institutions. Now here, we can't even be honest in our phraseology, right? So Camus said the first thing in dealing with a plague is to be honest and use the word plague. So what we call, we being the United States of America's government, these institutions now is systemically important as if they deserved a gold star. 
But even the Fed admits that that's not true, that the way you make the list is if you pose a global systemic danger. So when, not if, you'll notice I use the word when, when the next one of these systemically dangerous institutions fails, and there are roughly 25 of them in the United States and roughly 40 internationally, the Fed and the Treasury are telling us that they believe it will cause a global systemic crisis. So we're rolling the dice just in America 25 times every day, wondering when, not if, the next one will fail. And why would that, that is, what, Bill, why would that happen? In other words, we know about the liar's loans and we know about the derivatives and all the rest, but what do you see on the horizon that could cause it to happen again? Well, the ammunition varies, right? So the ammunition in the savings and loan debacle was commercial real estate loans. By the way, in Iceland, it was commercial loans, in other words, loans to corporations. In Ireland, it was mostly commercial real estate. Here in the United States, as you said, it happened to be liar's loans. But the ammunition will change, so they will fight the last war. And if you don't understand the fraud mechanism, you just understand the ammunition. When they change the ammunition, you go, oh, look, it's great. It's wonderful, because always when you start these fraud schemes, they report record profits. So let me just go back to this basic that we haven't done. This is the fraud scheme for a lender or a purchaser of loan. And part of the problem is this fraud scheme works simultaneously for the officers of both the lender and the entity that purchases the loans. So it has four ingredients, this fraud recipe. One, grow like crazy. Two, by making really crappy loans, but at a high nominal yield. Remember, that's just the stated interest rate. And of course, you're not going to actually get the interest rate because these things often will not be repaid. Three, while employing extreme leverage, that just means a whole lot of debt compared to equity. And four, while setting aside only preposterously low loss reserves. If you do those four things, you are mathematically guaranteed to do three things. First, the lender or the purchaser of loans will immediately report extreme profits. And all these frauds invariably were the ones reporting the highest profits in the entire nation in this lending or purchasing prospect. The second sure thing, of course, is under modern executive compensation, that will make the executives incredibly wealthy right away. And third, down the line, there'll be terrible losses. But you mentioned George Akerlof. The title of his famous article with Paul Romer is Looting the Economic Underworld of Bankruptcy for Profit. And this is the great asymmetry, of course. The bank or the Fannie and Freddie will suffer terrible losses, but the executives will make out like bandits. And you will note, not only have none of these people been prosecuted in the United States, with the exception of exactly one person, a woman, she was a moderately senior executive of Bank of America. She is the only person who will pay out of her own pocket. One, one successful civil suit. And why her? Against an individual. Why her? Why her? Yeah. There was a whistleblower. And the whistleblower at Bank of America brought the action under a law 
the False Claims Act that President Lincoln created in 1863 to deal with the rampant procurement fraud. Uh, in which Union soldiers were going into battle with meat that was killing them and guns that were defective and such. So this False Claims Act allows you as an individual, not the government, to bring an action in the name of the government when the government has been defrauded by people making claims on it. And so this individual brought this suit. His name is Edward O'Donnell. And the Justice Department has the option to take over that suit. Uh, you still get a percentage uh, if you originally brought it. And the, the government did so. And it went to the only semi-aggressive prosecutor of banks in the United States. You know, this again in the Valley of the Blind, the one-eyed man or woman, this king or queen. And he brought not a criminal action, even though they said this is a fraud and could have been charged criminally, they only brought a civil action. And they only brought it against her as an individual. And there's a $100 million judgment against her as a result. But that's the only person. This is called clawback when you take back the fraud proceeds that people got, not earned, through their bonuses and such that were the product of these fictional profits from this fraud recipe that I talked about. And what she ran is a classic example of the fraud recipe I just talked about. But all the others I've mentioned did exactly the same thing. Fannie and Freddie's managers, Citigroup's managers. One of the bank whistleblowers united is from Citigroup. He ran their internal underwriting, right? So he's a significant official, had a staff of 225 professionals reporting to him that did this underwriting function. And he looks at the loans that Citigroup is buying, and he finds that 40% of the reps and warranties are false. So he starts, you know, warning all the way up the food chain. He looks again, his people look again, and it's now up to 60%. And did I mention that Citigroup then takes these loans and under the same representations and warranties that it knows are false, sells them to Fannie and Freddie. And so Richard Bowen says, you know, that's not good. We're engaging in fraud and we'll also get sued. And so he sends this warning personally. And Richard Bowen, remind everybody who he is. So Richard Bowen is a co-founder of the Bank Whistleblowers United. He was a senior vice president at Citigroup. He ran their uh, risk underwriting group on home mortgages that they were purchasing. As I said, he had a staff of 225 right up till he did what I'm about to describe, Go ahead. which was to send the letter to Robert Rubin saying, we're up to 60% fraud. I started warning immediately because our very first came back at 40%. Instead of fixing it, you're making it worse, right? You've got to fix this. We're lying to people. And, and how so did he want Richard Bowen... It? How did he want the secretary to fix it? No, no, he wasn't the secretary. He was about to become the chairman of the board of Citigroup. Okay. And so to back up, Robert Rubin, as you said, was treasury secretary under President Clinton, and he was mentor to this guy named Larry Summers, who yep. was his successor as Treasury Secretary. But uh, Robert Rubin and Larry Summers and Bill Clinton 
were very eager to destroy Glass-Steagall, which, by the way, is the third plank of our plan, is to bring back right. the effective parts of Glass-Steagall, which, you, again, you can do without new regulation or statute. Is that um, right? You don't have yes, to Yes, and I'm happy to explain why, but I'll just close this loop. As soon as it was clear that it was going to be successful to destroy Glass-Steagall, and the entity leading this was Citigroup by doing this illegal merger with Travelers, a giant insurance company, where they were figuratively pointing a gun at their own head and saying, we're going to do this merger. It can't be done under Glass-Steagall. It's the largest financial merger in history. It's creating the largest financial entity in America. And if you don't repeal Glass-Steagall, we'll have to unwind the entire thing and create chaos. Okay, so let's right? just get, let's for our, our listeners' so, sake, Glass-Steagall prohibited, at the time anyway, while it was in effect, prohibited uh, the um, combining of two kinds of banking, right? They were investment banking and regular banking. Correct. Okay. Which is usually called commercial banking. Commercial banking. And then what happens is uh, Clinton comes along and agrees to the separation. Is that correct? Yes, although uh, it's worth noting that Clinton reappoints Alan Greenspan, the Ayn Rand fanatic, who had been tr trying to do the death of a thousand cuts of Glass-Steagall. So Glass-Steagall also had been rendered into something close to Swiss cheese. Interesting. But through federal opinions and regulation change instituted by Greenspan. On top of that, even with it turned into Swiss cheese, Swiss cheese, after all, still has a little substance, right? And so they couldn't do this merger with travelers. So they did it anyway. And the law, you know, says that you have to divest within two years. So they're saying, hey, you're going to have to, you're going to tear apart the largest financial institution in the world after we have fully integrated it. And there's going to be chaos domestically and internationally, right? So in essence, they're pointing a gun at their own head and saying, unless you get rid of Glass-Steagall, we're going to blow up us. And by blowing us ourselves up, we're going to take down your global economy. Now, Bill, how did they do it? How did they get rid of Glass-Steagall specifically? As you say, they passed you know, you, you Graham-Leach-Bliley in 1999, became law a bipartisan support between the Clinton administration and Phil Graham of infamy with Wendy Graham and the Enron stuff, and uh, and with the very strong support of Alan Greenspan. Okay, but and wait, that, wait, 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 wait. But you said that if Bernie becomes president, he can do it without any new laws. Uh, right. So how, if you rendered it the way that you did by congressional action, how do you repair that with no congressional action? All right. So that's the good question and why you're dealing with folks who uh, know there are many ways to skin a cat. We have had existing regulatory authority. So we need no new reg or no new statute for over 25 years to do individual minimum capital requirements for all of these banks. And if you set, if you actually did what the theory of that, that regulation and statute was, and set the capital requirement so that it was adequate to deal with the risk posed by an entity that causes a global systemic risk, that individual minimum capital requirement would be in the 70% range, 
which is to say there'd be no such banks. They would shrink. But somebody's going to bring that to the Supreme Court of the United States eventually, depending on how So many, it's an know, existing regulation. Right. And they're going under to Under authorized in, in a, by an existing statute. Yeah, I got it. For a quarter century. I got it. And you'd have to deal with these individual institutions, of course, by setting these minimums. But there know. are only 25 of these institutions. Yeah, but those 25 they all have, pull, they have, but they have lawyers. They're going to go to the well, Supreme yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to go to the Supreme Court and they're going to say, we have a, a law and you guys are getting around the law. That's not right. And depending on what the composition of the court is, you may well end up with a court saying, nah, this is too cute to do it this way. That's really hard uh, because this statute uh, is expressly designed to produce exactly the results we're talking about. The scandal is not using the individual minimum capital requirements. The scandal is the failure to use them for 25 years in the way they were designed. So that, by the way, is also how we would deal with the too big to fail, the systemically dangerous institutions. And that is how, again, remind us? It, this is, it's in jargon. This is the individual minimum capital requirement, again, which authority granted by statute to the federal banking regulatory agencies 25 years ago, where all the regulations are already extant. So all you have to do is say, look, this is the risk you pose. Okay. That risk is extraordinary. Okay, so now so, you have this group of people, you guys, uh, who yep. are coming up with these fixes. How can we be so sure that when an Obama and his advisors and Bush and their advisors say, hey, we can't fool around with this uh, because we're going to leave this, uh, uh, this system in chaos, so we have to go along with it. We have to bail them out, do what we have to do. Um, how can we be sure that they're not right, that if you guys have your way, and if Bernie, for example, gets, and I voted for him, but if Bernie gets his way, uh, that there will be, um, that there won't, won't be the kind of chaos that we were told we had to avoid. Well, because you've stated the grounds for chaos and you've therefore implicitly stated how to avoid it. You are correct. And this is why uh, Hillary Clinton is misleading on this argument, that as long as you leave the systemically dangerous institutions, the size they are, it doesn't matter what you say. Is any Treasury Secretary going to say, hey, bring on a global depression? Right. So you have to get rid of them. You'll note that we've gotten rid of exactly none of them <laughs> under Dodd-Frank, that most of them are not just larger, but vastly larger. So it's hollow words. As long as they're systemically dangerous, they're going to get bailed out. And the answer, therefore, is to force them to shrink in this fashion that I've just described. You put these capital requirements on, they will have to sell and divest to meet them. Now, I think you should give them several years to do that, right? So you don't have a fire sale, but that would take care of the chaos. And you are correct. Unless you get rid of the systemically dangerous institutions, you know, it's all just rhetoric. So you use the word systemically dangerous institutions. We have heard again and again that the banks in America are too big to fail. And my question to you would be that you're expecting them to sell off some of their assets. Why? In other words, if they're selling it off, it just means that they can't meet the requirements and that they're therefore dangerous. So why not say to them, you know, uh, why don't you run your businesses better? 
<laughs> well, banks are going to fail first, and they have all through history. They will all through uh, history. Uh, there's every reason to believe. But second, uh, the really big bank failures and the failures that are epidemic come from the precisely the fraud schemes that we've been talking about, these kinds of control frauds. So saying you should do things better when the people involved don't even understand what that means, don't even understand sure. the fraud schemes. So if you picked a single profession that failed catastrophically in this, you would certainly say bankers, but if you wanted to take an academic, you'd say economist, right? It's like yeah, yeah. the most embarrassing disaster imaginable. Well, who have we put in charge of dealing with systemically dangerous institutions and identifying them? Economists, entirely. So they're not going to get it right. They always get fraud wrong. In fact, I joke that economists have a primitive tribal taboo against even using the word fraud. So when I give talks to other economists, I frequently have them start out the entire meeting by saying the word fraud out loud. But there are many different kinds of economists. You're one, and you certainly are blowing the whistle. So why are all economists, when you say, why are all economists the same, which I think you're implying? No, but orthodox economists are taught uh, to ignore fraud, right? Fraud gets in the way of all of the models and all of the policies, which, you know, traditionally they have from the right and from the so-called left. This is the New Democrats under Bill Clinton. Uh, they have been just vehement supporters of deregulation, or actually more precisely what we call the three Ds, mm -hmm. deregulation, desupervision, and de facto decriminalization. And as soon as you do that, you do what we call in the criminology biz, you create a criminogenic environment, which is a direct steal from biology, a pathogenic environment that produces epidemics of disease. In our case, it produces epidemics of fraud because you create such strong, perverse incentives. And indeed, one of the frauds we were talking about, the leadership of Fannie Mae the first time around, because life is too fun, was put in charge by the Business Roundtable, which is the trade association of the 100 largest corporations in America, it was put in charge of being the spokesperson during the Enron scandal to explain why these frauds were occurring. And he was asked by, of all people, Businessweek, so, Frank, uh, why did we see all these scandals? And he said, it's money. It's the compensation. If you put enough money in front of people, and I quote, good people will do bad things, unquote. Now, not everybody. That's why Bank Whistleblowers United exists. You know, a number of people say no, but you don't need everyone to say no. I'm sorry, to say yes to uh, mm. the perverse incentives. And there are easy ways to get rid of whistleblowers that are all these corporate frauds. No. So uh, if you want to stop it going forward, you cannot base your system on the fantasy that there will never be failures again in banking. So to go forward, if, as we speak, Bernie Sanders becomes the president, unlikely, but it's possible, he becomes the president of the United States, and he takes your prescriptions for what needs to be done seriously. You're telling us that you don't think that there'll be financial chaos 
as a result of these too big to fail banks and other institutions, um, you know, having to divest or sell some of themselves off and the rest of it. If Hillary Clinton becomes the president of the United States, after all, her husband was the guy who did away with Glass-Steagall, right? Then what happens? We have more of the same? Well, that's clearly what people believe. That's what you're seeing in the polls, that they don't believe that she would actually implement. But let me just add the fourth thing that'll make it even more improbable. But our fourth thing is we ask the candidates to pledge that they won't take money from the financial felons, which, as we've discussed, are all the big banks in the United States. But how did they know that? In other words, you know, you, you have to pledge that you will not take money from the felons. Well, Felons are convicted people. The people who are giving them the money aren't convicted. Right. So we say in our pledge, the people that where the United States of America agencies have put in pleadings after investigations that say they committed frauds. Well, isn't that ex post facto? No, wait, wait, wait. So ex post facto, these are restraints on government. Right? Government can't penalize them. We're asking somebody not to take a campaign contribution <laughs> from yeah, yeah, but the from, financial felons. Yeah. That has nothing to do no, with it. No, I'm sorry, and it, I'm sorry. No, I don't I, get that part of it, which is you're saying don't take it from the financial felons. How does the bank know that they're a financial felon? Or the, uh, excuse me, the, the guy who's running for office or the woman who's running for office know that they're a felon? As I said, We ask you to take the standard that if the United States government, after investigation, has identified and has pled that that you engaged in these frauds, that you not take this money. And by the way, here's the historical antecedent. Back in the day, this is the savings and loan debacle. Yep. When we brought complaints, we actually did them in English. We spell out the frauds in ways that people could understand them, and we provided the supporting material in copious amounts. And what happened is the public was able to evaluate them, and the politicians rushed to return the political contributions or to donate them to charity. And so the greatest asset that they had these political contributions and the lobbying to block any regulatory crackdown, to try to block any prosecutions, became a liability. Well, I suspect that's going to happen. I suspect that's going to happen when pigs fly. In other words, I know politicians. It happened. I don't, well, I know a lot of politicians right now. Along comes, uh, you know, one of the guys who are running one of these big companies and says, here, one way or another, I'll bundle some money for you. I'll give you a million dollars. You think they're going to not take it because of your solution? Bernie isn't taking it. Well, so Bernie, it's Bernie an isn't getting it. I mean, you know. That's the point. This yeah. is an opportunity. If you're Hillary Clinton's people. And you've got problems in the polls with people not believing that you're actually changing. Why not take the bank whistleblower's pledge? Mm. This gets rid, as I said, of all the excuses. You can't say, oh, but, you know, I got to work with the Republicans and they're going to control Congress. No, no. You can do all of these things under your own power. And as I've emphasized, President Obama can do them now. And we are urging him to do these things now. And what, okay, now, you, do so either of us expect that's going to happen? No. Right. How come it's not going to happen? Because President Obama, I mean, his primary source of funding that made him president of the United States was Wall Street. So he's bought and paid for. He's certainly influenced, and it isn't just the contributions. Who were his great advisors? 
from early days. So this is what Rahm Emanuel, and this is Bill Daly. Who are Rahm Emanuel and Bill Daly? Well, they're not just, you know, mayor of Chicago. These are both investment bankers. And it wasn't just them. It was the Pritzkers. The Pritzkers, who were among the leading predatory lenders in America and are leading supporters of now President Obama, but back when he was trying to become simply a state representative uh, in Illinois. So from the earliest times, he has been strongly influenced by finance. He believes what these people believe. He has identified, he's publicly stated that he thinks of himself as a new Democrat. And by the way, new Democrat is code for Wall Street in all of this. That was Bill Clinton, Al Gore. People don't understand. They understand, you know, that often that he repealed Glass-Steagall, that he uh, got rid of our ability to regulate derivatives. But they forget that he slashed the FDIC by more than three quarters and the Office of Thrift Supervision by more than half. So it wasn't just deregulation. It was also this desupervision that I talked about and this absolute hostility to prosecuting that you talked about, where the administration actually claimed that it would disrupt Mm, and cause chaos if we were to prosecute individuals, well, not Bill, the corporations, mind you. Well, Bill Black, I wish we could go on. I'd list, love to listen to you for another hour. Believe me, I would, and maybe we'll invite you back. But in the meantime, we've been talking with Bill Black, professor of economics, white-collar criminologist and author. Professor, thanks so much for being with us today. I have to say I, I held onto my chair and tried to keep up. And I thank you so much. And I thank you so much for doing it. It really was very impressive. Appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.